Jesus came to be baptized by John, but John didn't want to do it, at least not initially. Then Jesus tells him to do it anyways, and so John goes ahead and allows it. After the baptism, there's this amazing Trinitarian scene. We see the Holy Spirit, the Son, and God the Father speaking from heaven. But what is this all about? Why did Jesus insist on being baptized by John? How does this fulfill all righteousness? Jesus had no need of repentance, and that was what John's baptism was all about. And so what are we to make of all of this? Let's look at this here section by section. The whole scene revolves really around the three responses that we see to the baptism. John initially refuses the baptism. He tried to prevent it. Then Jesus persuades John to carry it out. And when the baptism is over, immediately God the Spirit and the Father respond as well. And so we're going to call this, as we look at the text, we're going to call it three responses to Jesus' baptism. First, we're going to see that John tried to prevent it in verses 13 and 14. Then we'll see that Jesus said to permit it in verse 15. And third, we'll see God was pleased in it, verses 16 and 17. And so we have three responses to Jesus' baptism. I'm going to give you those points as we go. But the first response this morning in our text is that that John tried to prevent it. John tried to prevent it. Look at verse 13 again. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In, in chapter 3, verse 5, we saw the crowds of people who came to John's baptism. They were from Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region around the Jordan. And where John was was wilderness country. It was, it seems like John went to the least likely place to try to reach Israel. Everyone who tried to get to John or who would have come to John would have had some difficulty, some kind of a, a difficult journey to get to him where he was in the wilderness. And now Jesus comes too. And Jesus comes from even further away. Jesus came from Galilee. Mark 1 9 tells us that he came from Nazareth of Galilee. And so Jesus, it would seem, grew up then in the the little hamlet of Nazareth. And he came to John to be baptized by him. The reason that Jesus came was to be baptized by John. In the Greek construction there, to be baptized shows the purpose of Jesus' coming. Jesus wanted to be baptized by John. And he made the long journey from his hometown to receive John's baptism. But when John saw Jesus coming to him, he tried to prevent him. The ESV translates it there, John would have prevented him. The NASB says, but John tried to prevent him. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible or the Christian Standard Bible says, John tried to stop him. The sense is that John made an unsuccessful attempt to keep Jesus from being baptized. He tried to prevent this baptism. And he did this by saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John here seems to recognize who Jesus is. He had spoken, uh, he he had just spoken about he who is coming after me in in John, or Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. Look at that there, Matthew 3, 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John could be saying that he needs Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit. 
another possibility here is that John is saying that he wants Jesus to baptize him with a baptism for repentance. John could be acknowledging that he is a sinner too and that he needs to repent and be baptized in the same way that John was baptizing others. But either way, John is saying that Jesus does not need his baptism of repentance. Jesus had nothing to repent of. He committed no sin. And at this point, we might wonder how John recognized Jesus. You know, sometimes you hear people speculate that, that John and Jesus might have known one another, that they might have grown up together. It's very likely that they did not. They were cousins, but it's very likely that they didn't grow up together. Jesus' mother Mary visited John's mother Elizabeth during their pregnancy. Mary was the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. But, but John grew up in Judah in the wilderness, and Jesus grew up in Nazareth of Galilee. And so it's very unlikely that they would have met and that they would have made that journey at other times in their lives. Besides, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist said, this is John chapter 1 and verse 30, John the Baptist said here, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John may have heard about his cousin's miraculous birth from his mother and his father, but he didn't know Jesus until this moment when Jesus came to be baptized. Now, Matthew does not tell us how John came to recognize Jesus. He said that he, John said that he did not know him until the Spirit came upon him. God had given John this sign that would confirm who the Messiah was. But somehow, even before this sign sealed all doubt, John recognized that Jesus as, was one who needed no repentance. We can maybe remember here that John was a prophet. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 9, Jesus says, What then did you go out to see? Talking about what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A prophet, he asks. Yes, Jesus says. And I tell you, more than a prophet... This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so John was a prophet, yes, more than a prophet. He was the one especially chosen to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. Remember what Elizabeth said when uh, when Mary visited? Remember Elizabeth or, or sorry, Mary went and visited Elizabeth. Uh, this is from Luke one thirty nine. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary was pregnant with Jesus at this time. Zechariah and Elizabeth were John's parents, and Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. And so hear that again. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so even as a baby in his mother's womb, John recognized Jesus when Jesus came near. 
John then, knowing that the coming one had come, God in human flesh had come, he was reluctant to baptize Jesus. John knew that his baptism, again, was a baptism of repentance. It was a call to repent and to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. Those who came, came according to Matthew 3 and verse 5. They were baptized by John in the Jordan River, and they came confessing their sins. And so everyone who came, came to, to, to John, came confessing their sins and repenting of their sins. And if someone didn't confess sins or didn't show the fruit of repentance, John would refuse to baptize them. Matthew 3 and verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then in verse 10, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John would not baptize, we saw this last week, that John wouldn't baptize the Pharisees or the Sadducees for this reason that they weren't repenting and that they weren't bearing fruit keeping with repentance. Now, John doesn't want to baptize Jesus for the exact opposite reason. It's because Jesus has no sin. Matthew doesn't tell us, again, how John came to that conclusion, but Scripture everywhere testifies to this truth. Isaiah 53 and verse 9, speaking about Jesus, speaking about the coming Messiah, says, "...although He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in His mouth." Isaiah 53.11 calls him the righteous one. 1 Peter 2.22 picks up on this Isaiah language and says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3 and verse 5 says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 calls Jesus Him who knew no sin. And Hebrews 4.15 says that He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7 verse 26 to 27 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus had no need to offer up sacrifices for his own sins, again, because he had no sin, because he was entirely without sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted even above the heavens. And somehow John sees Jesus and he knew this, and he tried to prevent Jesus then from receiving his baptism. But Jesus had come to be baptized by John, and therefore he told John to permit it. And that's what we see in the second part of our outline. This is the second response then to Jesus' baptism. This is the, the response from Jesus. And so number two then, Jesus said to permit it in verse 15. John tried to prevent it. Jesus now says to permit it. Verse 15 again, but Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus basically tells John to do it anyways. 
He doesn't disagree with John's logic. He doesn't say that he has sin to confess. He says, let it be so for now. This is actually a command. It's literally permit it or permit it now or or permit it at this time. Jesus tells John to allow this thing that seems really inappropriate to him. And then he explains, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now this explanation was enough for John. Or or maybe we should say that the the command was enough for John. It's hard to know for sure if John was able to grasp the significance of fulfilling all righteousness. But whether he understood or not, he consented and he baptized Jesus. Now this is important because it, it really shows us at least two things right away. First of all, Jesus is in charge right from the very beginning of his ministry. This this baptism is really the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus came to John, but but Jesus is in control here. Jesus calls the shots. Nobody else told John who he should or should not baptize. And secondly, notice that John obeys Jesus here. I'm, I'm not sure if he fully understood why he should baptize Jesus. How does it fulfill all righteousness to baptize someone for repentance when they need no repentance? But still... Jesus' command was clear enough. Even if John wasn't clear on the reasons behind the command, Jesus' command was clear enough, and John obeyed Jesus. It would have been entirely inconsistent for John to go around and say that the coming one is mightier than me, and the I'm not worthy to even carry his sandals, and then for him to go and not obey him when he comes. Jesus spoke about this kind of thing in, in Luke 6.46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? But John obeyed Jesus. And if Jesus is Lord and if he is worthy, then we ought to obey him as our Lord as well. John obeyed Jesus in the same way that he obeyed God and and followed his directions with the way that he lived his life, with his preaching in the wilderness. And so John obeyed Jesus in the same way that he obeyed God. Now let's see as we kind of think about this a little bit more, let's see if we can get a little bit of understanding of why this baptism was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Um, this week as I studied this passage, uh, I, I went through all the commentaries that I have and I tried to label all the different views that they mentioned and I came up with at least eight views on what this could mean for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I could have actually had more than there there were because sometimes it was really difficult to understand even what the commentators were saying. And, and so it's possible that I divided into two views, just two different commentators that actually held very similar views, but I just couldn't see what they were exactly saying. Usually when people are hard to understand, it's because they don't understand themselves what they're talking about. And so I'm not going to give you all these views today. I don't think it's going to be helpful. I'm just going to give you the view that I think is best, and then I'll explain the objections against that view. And uh, if you want to dig into this further, you could you could feel free. I, I should say this, the, the most helpful thing on this thing was a sermon by Pastor Phil Johnson on Matthew 3.15. And if you want it, I would, I would highly recommend looking up that sermon. Uh, he's preached it a number of times in a number of places, but Phil Johnson on Matthew 3.15. <clears throat> For sure the most helpful. So again, well, let, let's try to understand this a little bit. This is, the, again, the first act of Jesus' ministry. 
We will learn later in the gospel that, that Jesus, according to Matthew 20 and verse 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for his people. A, a ransom is the payment price to release someone from slavery. And so Jesus came to make a payment that was going to release his people from their slavery to sin and to death. We saw in Matthew one twenty one that Jesus came uh, and that he would save his people from their sins. And what Jesus is doing here then, I believe, is that he is acting as our representative. He's identifying himself with sinners who came to be baptized by John. Jesus is not fulfilling righteousness for himself. He's fulfilling righteousness for others. Think about it. John's baptism wasn't required by the law. We talked about that last week. There's no command in the Old Testament law for Jesus to be baptized. And even if God required Israel to be baptized during that period of John's ministry, surely that wouldn't apply to Jesus who had no sin and had no need of repentance. Jesus is righteous already. He couldn't add to his righteousness by being baptized by John, especially since that's not a command. Jesus as God is the embodiment of righteousness. He is the definition of righteousness. He is righteous in and of himself. To understand righteousness, we would want to look to Jesus Christ because he is righteousness. And so I think the best view is to see this baptism as Jesus identifying himself with sinners and acting as their representative. And this fits well with what we're going to see in chapter 4. We're going to look at this next week. But right after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark says that in, in Mark 1.12, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And we think about who else was tempted by the devil, and you think right away, Adam who also acted as our representative, was tempted by the devil. And so where Adam failed in the Garden of Eden to obey God, we see that Jesus succeeded. Both of them were our representatives. And this fits really well with Isaiah 53. And a a number of commentators here see an allusion uh, between our passage, this fulfilling of righteousness, and Isaiah 53.11. We're going to look at that here in a minute. In fact, you could go ahead and, and turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, really from 52 verse 13 to 53 verse 12, there's There's this idea in this section, this is one of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and there's this idea throughout this section, again, this is a a prophecy of Christ, uh, a looking forward to the coming of Christ, but um, there's this idea throughout this section of substitution. The servant that Isaiah spoke about would identify with and represent the people to God. And we know this servant is Jesus, not only from the New Testament, which explicitly says so, but also even just from the fact that Jesus perfectly fulfilled this section of Scripture. And so as we look through these verses, I want you to notice the 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 language of substitution, the, the representation, the idea that the servant takes the penalty and sorrow and grief and pain of his people 
because he takes on their sin. And so we'll start just in verse 3, Isaiah 53, verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." Now, verse 3 tells us how the servant was treated. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The, the servant was, was treated poorly. Verse 4 goes on to say that, that why he was treated that way. He says he bore the griefs and carried the sorrows of the, the people who are speaking here. And, and who are the speakers in this section? Who are the we, the us, the, the our? Who are all these plural pronouns pointing to? And although most of this applies to us, I think the best view here is that the speakers are a future generation of Israel who are going to make this confession that we see in Isaiah 53. They're going to make this confession. One day, they're going to come to realize that Jesus was their Messiah that he was despised and rejected, but that he was so because he bore their griefs and their sorrows. Israel to this day regards Jesus as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They, they think Jesus was punished on the cross as a criminal, that he died on the cross as an evildoer, that God judged him on the cross for his sins, and so he was smitten by God, stricken by God. They think that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross because of something that Jesus had done. But one day they're going to realize that it wasn't his sins that he was punished for, but it was for their sins. Again, in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so you see how their sins and ours, our sins as well, are are counted as his. They're they're counted as his. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was it was our sin that was laid upon him. Verse five, or sorry, verse six. We all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, Yahweh put the iniquity of others on the servant, on Jesus Christ. He represented them and he paid for their sins. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Now, this is really truly amazing. This was written 700 years before Jesus was taken by oppression and judgment. And among his generation, so few realized that it was all for the transgression of Isaiah's people. Verse 9, second part of verse 9 there, although he had done no violence, 
and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And we could ask here, why would it be the will of the Lord to crush someone who had done no violence? Why would the Lord put him to grief who had no deceit in his mouth? And the answer is to make an offering for the guilt of others. Following, uh, Continuing on in verse 10, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their inequities. Uh, again, verse 11 there could have been on Jesus' mind when he says to, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is the righteous one who makes many righteous by bearing their iniquities, transgressions, and sins. And we, as believers, are accounted as righteous in him. In fact, where it says there in verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant, where, where it says that there, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, that could be translated, by knowledge of him shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We are made righteous <clears throat> through knowing Jesus Christ. Verse 12 continues, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, although righteous himself, was numbered with the transgressors. He identified with sinners, and as our representative, he bore our sins. And this is why Jesus told John that it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was acting as our representative, fulfilling righteousness on our behalf. Again, there was no need for him to be baptized for his own sake. And if there was useless for his own sake, then it must have been for others. <clears throat> now, let me just tell you why some of the commentators don't like this view. L listen to one commentator. He said this. He says, this view seems foreign to Mathene theology and smacks of a Pauline emphasis. Now, in defense of this, I would just say that we haven't even looked at what Paul said yet. We've just gone to the book of Isaiah where, where it could be that, that this whole thing is alluding to. Now, we definitely want to understand what Matthew is saying and not read Paul into Matthew. Paul wrote probably mostly after Matthew. And now, tied with this, as the commentators kind of uh, seem to be against this view in, in many places, tied with this, some say that when, when and, and I believe they're right, in this sense, they say that when Matthew uses the word righteousness, he always means, quote, conduct which God expects of people, end quote, or proper conduct before God, or another way to say it, righteousness means God's demand upon men. And they would say along these lines that to fulfill all righteousness must actually mean to then to do something righteous, to do something in obedience to the law, to do something which God expects. In other words, what they're saying is that the act of baptism must have somehow been righteous in itself. And those who object would also probably point to verse 15. We can go back to Matthew 3.15 there. And they would point there to the, the fact that it says there, for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
It's not just Jesus who's fulfilling righteousness, they would say. They'd say this is something that John is also involved in. Both Jesus and John are to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I would just say against those objections that all of that is really just missing the whole point of what's actually happening here. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness in that he is identifying with his people and beginning to fulfill the conduct that God demands for them. He's fulfilling all righteousness for others. And John then is graciously included in this because he is the one who must baptize Jesus to help him identify and be numbered with the transgressors. And so this righteousness that Jesus begins to fulfill for us is then imputed to us by faith. And this is where Paul comes in. Paul, and wouldn't we expect this if, if we're, if we're reading through the gospel, wouldn't we expect Paul and the other New Testament writers to make explicit, to, to make clear what the gospel writers present to us in narrative form? Wouldn't we expect them to take the, the seed of what Matthew presents and then explain the meaning and significance of what Jesus did? And so when Paul comes, he doesn't have a different understanding of righteousness. Paul tells us that we are all sinners, but we are counted righteous, that we are given this, this, um, conduct which God expects of people, but, but we are, that is imputed to us through Jesus Christ. The righteousness that Christ earned as our representative is counted as ours as if we, because we are in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul spoke about in Romans 3, 4, and 5. And, and we might as well just turn, I'm going to look at a few verses in the book of Romans here as we kind of see how Paul brings out this, this same idea that Matthew presents here in the baptism. And, uh, and Paul just kind of brings it out and explains it and makes it really, really clear for us. Romans, we could start Romans 4, verse 3. Paul says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him. It was, it was regarded as righteousness to him. Verse 5 of Romans 4, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you're a Christian and believe, or really a, a better word for us today is if you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, God counts Christ's righteousness as yours. Though you are ungodly, you are justified by faith. To be justified is from that same word group as righteous and righteousness and right. It means that God declares you righteous and regards you as righteous. And this justification is not something that you can work for or earn. It's a free gift of God's grace. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.28, Paul says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justification means that we are counted righteous and therefore the holy God can have a relationship with us. Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul 
in Romans here unpacks this doctrine of justification by grace through faith apart from works, that we are counted as righteous because of what Christ did, not because of what we do, but just simply by believing in Him, God counts us as though we had the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As Paul expounds this, he expects two objections against this. And he covers the one in chapter 5, starting at verse 12, and he covers the other one in chapter 6. Now, the objection in chapter 6 answers the objection that that says something along these lines. If if we're justified by faith apart from works, then won't we just go on sinning? If people are are justified and, and they're counted righteous and, and they don't need to do any works to to earn this or to merit this, then aren't they just going to run off into sin? And Paul's answer is no way, no no chance, because when we are united with Christ by faith, we're transformed so that we no longer want to continue in sin. We We walk now in a newness of life because we've been born again. Now, Romans 6 is really outside of the objection that I want to get into today, but Romans 5 is really important for us in this context. Romans 5, 12 and following covers the other objection to the doctrine of justification by faith. And and the objection kind of goes something like this. How can one person's sin or or one person's righteousness be counted as another's? How can there be this transfer of righteousness or of sin from one person to another? How can Christ take on our sins and how can we take upon ourselves his righteousness. How can God impute Christ's righteousness to sinners? And Paul just ingeniously goes, ah, he says, this happens all the time. This, this actually happened another time in scripture. And he goes to the example of Adam and he says that Adam's sin was counted and transmitted to all of his offspring. Now, I can't go through this whole section today, but there's a, a comparison here between Adam and Christ. Adam's one sin made many people who followed him sinners. And in the same way, Christ's righteousness justified many people. And so both Adam and Christ acted as representatives for all of those who are in them, all of those who are united in in them. Now, we are all united in Adam by birth. We, we come into this world in Adam, as it were. We, we come from Adam and through Adam. And so in Adam, we have all sinned and become sinners. Now, if by faith you are joined to Jesus Christ and union with Him, then you are joined in Christ and His righteousness then counts for you. And so there's this comparison and this contrast between what Adam did and what Christ did in this passage. Let's just, we'll start at verse 16. And it says there, and the free gift. And this is the free gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Again, 5.16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification 
and life for all men. Now, just let's just kind of slow down here a little bit. In verse 18, therefore, there's this comparison. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so in the same way that Adam's one sin condemned the whole human race, so Christ's one act of righteousness, which really refers to his entire life of obedience that led up to death on the cross by by this one righteousness, it leads to justification and life for all men, not all men in general, but all men who are in Christ. Verse 19 does that same kind of so as thing. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, right? By Adam's disobedience, many people were made sinners. So in the same way, by one man's obedience, that's the obedience of Jesus Christ as our representative, the many will be made righteous. And so again, in the same way that Adam represented all humanity and by his one sin, he plunged the human race into death and judgment, so Christ, by his righteous life and death, brings freedom from sin and death and freedom from judgment to all who are united to him. And Paul says what what happened with Adam can happen again in reverse with Christ. The same thing that happened with Adam can now happen the other way through Jesus Christ. Another text, and why don't you just turn there, Second Corinthians 5.21 kind of says the same thing in a little tighter package. Second Corinthians 5.21, really, really an important verse for us, says it's for our sake, that's uh, for our sake, He, that is God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now that is Jesus Christ. So for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made sin in that God counted him and treated him as if he had committed all the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him. And in Him, we become the righteousness of God. That is, we are treated as though we had perfectly obeyed God's commandments at every point. And God did this, the text says, for our sake. Again, Jesus fulfilled righteousness on our behalf. And from the start of His ministry, He identified with sinners so that He could bear our transgressions and earn for us a spotless righteousness that reconciles us to God. And so again, Jesus said, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Now what we'll see next is that God was pleased with what Jesus did. God is pleased with Jesus and his righteousness. And if Jesus's righteousness is ours in him, then what this means is that God will also be pleased with us through Christ. And so number three in our outline, God was pleased in it. Verses 16 and 17. God was pleased in the baptism of Christ. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I just want to kind of hit, hit on two little asides here that, that I think are important, but, but they're kind of asides. This is one of the greatest Trinitarian passages in all of Scripture. The, the Spirit comes 
and rests on the Son as God the Father speaks from heaven and declares the Son beloved. And, and modalists, oneness Pentecostals, and other Trinity-denying heretics have trouble with this passage. They, they can't answer this passage. All three persons of the one true God are present, and each are carrying out different roles in the one work of salvation here. The, the Son is being baptized. The Spirit is descending upon and anointing the Son, and the Father is speaking from heaven to the Son, declaring the Son as His beloved with whom He is well pleased. And together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, are accomplishing salvation for His people. Really, beginning in this moment as Jesus is acting as our representative, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit come together and, and show their 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 working together in accomplishing salvation. Now, another little aside besides the Trinitarian thing is that I should point out here that baptism by, is by immersion just from this text. When Jesus went down into the water, it says, and then he came up out from the water. He came up from the water. John's baptism and Christian baptism are water baptism by immersion. Both were illustrations of something that were true in the life of the person baptized. For John and his baptism, that was an illustration of repentance. That the baptized person had turned from sin, that they were dead to their old life, and it it pictured the cleansing of the forgiveness of sins. For the Christian... The idea of repentance and forgiveness is included, but now the picture is even more vivid. Baptism is a a symbol of all of salvation, that the baptized person is now saved, that they are dead to their old way of life, which is pictured when they go under the water, that they have died to their old life, that they are buried with Christ. And then when they come up out of the water, there's this picture that they are now alive with Christ and cleansed of their former life, cleansed of their former sin, and that they are walking now in newness of life by the power of Christ. And immersion is really the best picture of the reality of salvation because going under the water shows our union with Christ in His death and that we are buried with Christ in His death and that our old life is no longer. And then coming up out of the water shows that our union with Him in His resurrection. And baptism also is a public declaration of our identity with Christ and that, and, and that we now belong to Him and to His people. And again, it's meant to symbolize the reality that we are joined with Christ in a union with Him and that we are therefore joined with His church. And all of this should show how backwards it is to, to be, quote, baptized if you're not saved. You only have then, if you're not saved, but you've been baptized, you've been immersed in water, then, then all you have is the symbol and the reality, and you don't have the reality that that symbol is meant to symbolize. Now, we could flip this the other way and look at it the other way as well. If you have the reality, that is, if you are truly united with Christ in His death and burial and resurrection, then wouldn't you want the symbol of that reality that, that outwardly identifies you with Him? Wouldn't you want that to be an accurate picture of what happened in your salvation? And that's just kind of something to, to leave you to think about. That's something worth spending some time thinking about. So those are my two asides here. So let's get back to kind of the, the main idea of the text here, the righteousness 
that Christ is acting as our representative. When, when Jesus now comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on Him as a dove. The heavens were opened and the Spirit came down. Jesus, it says, saw this and it's likely that others saw it as well. Uh, we know from John's Gospel, from the Gospel of John, that John the Baptist saw this as well. Uh, the Spirit could have assumed a, a dove-like manner when He comes down as a dove. It, it could be that the Spirit assumed the, the form of a dove. Or it could be that He came down in a, a dove-like manner, whatever that means. But regardless, the Spirit came upon Jesus in a special, visible way here. Now, the fact that the Spirit comes on Jesus at this point shouldn't make us or lead us to conclude that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before. He, he likely would have been filled with the Spirit, but somehow the Spirit now visibly comes down and rests on Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit by this anointing shows that Jesus, or, or that He is pleased with Jesus' baptism. God the Father also shows His pleasure by declaring Christ His Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Now this is a rare thing in Scripture that the audible voice of God is heard. It only really happens a handful of times throughout the Bible. And, and here, the audible voice of God is heard to declare Christ as God's Son. Now what God spoke from heaven in this passage is likely an allusion to Isaiah 42 and verse 1, as well as Psalm 2 and verse 7. Let me read to you Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. That in whom my soul delights is really uh, very, very similar to what we see in our text, Matthew 3, verse 17. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so this is a, a declaration of the servant, the same servant that we saw in Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. God the Father delights in His Son. And He put His Spirit upon Him. This is really fulfilled in verse 16 of our text when the Spirit comes down as a dove and lands on Christ. He will cause justice to the nations. He's going to make justice happen to the nations. And, and this is also connected with Psalm chapter 2. And you could turn, if you wanted in your Bible, to Psalm chapter 2. This is one of the great messianic psalms. Verse 1 asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And that anointed there is really the Messiah. That's, that's the, the Messiah. That's literally what it is. The, the Messiah. Why do they take counsel against the Messiah? In verse seven, as he goes on, I will, I will tell the decree. In verse, actually in verse six, God is, says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then verse seven, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, this is now God the Son speaking. And we know that from what he says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. By joining these scriptures together, the Father declares Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the servant of Yahweh, as the one who accomplishes redemption, the one who is the rightful ruler of the nations, and He's the one in whom the Father is well pleased. Now when we see all of this as the beginning of the accomplishment of redemption, we not only see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in our redemption, we also see how glorious a salvation that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit designed. Because because as our representative, Jesus' righteousness is counted as ours, It means that the Father's delight in the Son is also ours when we become children of God. Christian, when the Father looks at you, weak and struggling though you are, He doesn't only see you, He sees you as joined in an unbreakable union with His Son. He sees your sins and your failures, but He doesn't relate to you on the basis of those. He does not relate to you based on your performance. And thank God for this. He he relates to you as though you were His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. He has covered you in the white robes of Jesus Christ because Christ took upon Himself your filthy robes beginning especially at this moment when He was baptized to identify Himself with you. Now, doesn't that make you want to say with the Father that you are well pleased with Christ, that He is a great Savior? And if we hold Him in so high regard, we should obey His commandments, not in order to be saved, but we should obey His commandments out of gratitude to the fact that He has saved us. He has saved us and made us righteous. He has reconciled us to God by His life of obedience. What a wonderful Savior we have. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this great work of salvation that You have accomplished through Jesus Christ, that He would come to this world to act as our representative, to fulfill all righteousness for our sake. Thank You that You were in Him reconciling the world to Yourself, and that now You have committed to us this ministry of reconciliation, this Gospel that we can preach. We thank You that we are regarded as righteous in Christ, that You don't treat us according to our sins, but You treat us according to Jesus Christ in whom You delight. Father, we too delight in You and in Your Son and in Your Spirit who has given us such a great salvation. Father, help us to live worthy of that salvation. Help us to walk in that salvation and glorify You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.